I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Simon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at ConsMinds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 92, we read Common Sense by Thomas Paine, published in 1776. Thomas Paine was born in Thetford, England in 1737 and emigrated to the British American colonies in 1774. He became a journalist in Philadelphia and was propelled to instant fame in 1776 when he published Common Sense, a vigorous defense of American independence. After the war, he returned to England, where he, was, where he published a defense of the French Revolution, eventually fleeing to France to avoid his arrest. He was granted French citizenship, but was arrested there in 1793 for opposing the king's execution and narrowly avoided losing his own head. He retired to America in 1802, but his long-standing ridicule of Christianity had made him deeply unpopular. When he died in 1809, only six mourners attended his funeral. Well, wow, that's interesting. I don't think I had known that lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he fell out of, you know, everybody had read this in 1776. It was the bestseller, and uh, by, yeah, by 1890, was like... Nobody wanted to know his name. That's amazing. Well, so this is a, a, a strong broadside against the royal monarchy. And as far as I can tell, it was kind of the first work to openly ask for independence from Great Britain. And uh, he used very plain language so that the common people could understand. I think he published it anonymously, anonymously to begin with. Uh, like you said, hugely popular, certainly a treasonous act to go out there and put yourself out there like that. And it's kind of one of the, one of the contributing kickoffs for the revolutionary war. He says the cause of America is in great measure, the cause of all mankind. So this is philosophy. You know, he's, he, he is going to go through and list the reasons that he thinks that the monarchy um, should be uh, thrown off, but he starts with, you know, broader principles, ideological principles about, about uh, uh, humankind and, and freedom. The cause of America is in a great measure the cause of all mankind. Many circumstances hath and will arise, which are not local, but universal, and through which the principles of all lovers of mankind, declaring war against the natural rights of all mankind and extirpating the defenders thereof from the face of the earth is the concern of every man to whom nature hath given the power of feeling. And you can sort of see, imagine people reading this and being like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think this was part of that um, kind of transformation of the early revolution to you, when you, when people were first getting the, those stirrings of rebellion in the 1760s, 1770s, a lot of it was about, and we hear this even now when we talk about our history, a lot of it was about the, the rights of Englishmen, how, how the colonists thought, Hey, I'm an Englishman as good as anybody in London or York. Why are they, treating me like I don't have rights, you know, why are they doing, you know, taxing us without representation? Why are they stationing troops here? Why are they doing all these things? You know, if parliament wants to do that, we ought to have a right to approve it. We ought to have a vote because that is uh, something that's been true in England for centuries. But as it's going on, you know, and as people really start to think about, well, what do, what do we mean when we talk about natural rights? And we've had 
when we we had the Strauss episode and various other episodes where we tried to talk about natural rights, and they're they're harder to find. But as they're thinking about it, they get into a sort of bigger Enlightenment idea. And by the time Common Sense is written, and you know, the same year the Declaration of Independence is written, now they're talking about the rights of man, the rights of of all mankind. They're like like you you quoted that that line, and I, I have it on their line too. That the cause of America is in great measure the cause of all mankind. What Payne is is doing, and I think in in a way even more so than the Declaration when it comes to popular opinion, because this was like I said a very influential pamphlet just it was in every city and town people were reading it they start to think well it's not just that the king is messing with us or this prime minister is depriving us of rights it's these are rights that everybody ought to possess this Mm -hmm. is this is a movement for for liberty that it's true here in philadelphia and baltimore and new york and boston but it's it also would be true in paris which is why Payne went over there later it would be true in Moscow. It would be true in Timbuktu. You know, these are these are natural human rights that are being deprived of us. And it, that transformation really, it kind of made the revolution irrevocable in a way. You know, if it wasn't when people first started thinking of revolution, it, you could see maybe in England they're saying, "All right, rebellions happen. We'll give them what they want, and then we'll be a happy family again." By the, by this point, it's really starting to get baked in that this is a different society here in america and we're recognizing these natural rights this these enlightenment ideas that nowhere else in the world are really the foundation of a society the way ours was becoming and and that i that i think is part of the what's so striking about this and it sounds normal to us now because we talk this way and we talk about you know the the common heritage of all mankind you know i mean uh, george bush talked about that when we talked about liberty in Iraq and whatnot, how they, they have the right to have a gov- elected government just like we do, right? This is, these are universal ideas. That sounds normal that, because it's become such a part of our, our thing. At that, at that time, though, that was uh, revolutionary, not to make a play on words, but it really, it was a revolutionary idea. And pretty remarkable. And I think it's worth reflecting on the fact that, like you said, it's become common conventional wisdom for us that that's, that that's the truth. But certainly wasn't at that time and and to found an entire civilization on an ideal on 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 ideas is really remarkable i mean it's so remarkable in the history of of the planet before that and obviously it's been incredibly influential in how the world has developed since then sometimes i think maybe especially these days when we're so obsessed with um the the faults of the founders it's, it's pretty remarkable to think here's a group of guys. Remember at that time, there was only about two and a half million colonists. It's not, not large, you know, it's a, mm-hmm. a small state now. And so you have, you know, several geniuses among them, of course, but then a lot of fervent people who want to try something new and, and have the courage to really put out something like this. For example, I'm sure most of the colonists were, either in the camp of monarchy's not that bad or they are that bad, but I don't know that I really want to do anything about it. And there's pamphlets like this, it's ideas that really pushed people and, and inspired them to act and do something incredible, and, you know, for the first time in history. And obviously like change the course of history. 
pretty cool. Absolutely. And it, it has a sort of, uh, so when he gets into the philosophy, it, it has a sort of, I think, a Lockean uh, derivation. I mean, it feels like he's talking about why people, why people form governments. And even to even think that way is sort of in line with John Locke. I, I, I think getting back to original causes and, you know, this idea that man existed in a state of nature, and then he came together to make things happen that he couldn't do alone. This is, this is itself an, uh, an enlightenment idea. And it's sort of, it's an abstract idea. I mean, I don't know that any of them were picturing a bunch of people actually talking about this, you know, like a bunch of uh, primitive people saying, Hey, let's, let's make a government, you know, but it, it did, that is sort of a, a metaphor for how it did happen. Eventually at some point we had no governments and then eventually we had some and something came in between. So uh, pain kind of d- divides the whole human civilization into society and government. He says, society is produced by our wants and government by our wickedness. The former promotes our happiness positively by uniting our affections. The latter negatively by restraining our vices. Society in every state is a blessing, but government, even in its best state, is a necessary evil. So you could see why he uh, became unpopular every place he went. Because that's sort of, you know, sure, we wanted to hear that in 1776, but after we won... Uh, he didn't, he wasn't the sort to say, well, now we have a good government and I'm going to support it. He was was not that kind of guy. So he went over to France and and, and England and pretty much made himself obnoxious everywhere he went because he did have this view that, well, he was like an early libertarian. Even when people he liked were in charge, he didn't like that they were in charge. And government, he, 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 he sort of thought of government as the thing that because of our natures, we can't do everything by consent and, and mutual uh, agreement, you know, between people because bad actors will act badly. And it's our wickedness, as he says, that, that drives us to finally create a government. So we have to make the best of it. There has to be something, but he seems to really like the idea of a, as little of it uh, as possible. Yeah. And like you said, you can see the Lockean roots here. He says, here then is the origin and the rise of government, namely a mode rendered necessary by the inability of moral virtue to govern the world. I mean, uh, you, you, there's a lot of Hobbes in there too. The, you know, mm-hmm. the world itself is people are innately uh, probably going to be uh, evil and immoral. So what we need is to separate people from them from themselves and from their from their vices. Here too is the design and end of government, that is to say, the freedom and security. What's interesting to me is. Pain is, I think, often looked like, or looked to as a as sort of a, a proto uh, liberal, you know, progressive, mm-hmm. and you can see some of that because, as you said, I mean, he moved from the American Revolution to the French Revolution, and I think conservatives would draw a clear distinction between those two and say, well, that was very different than what was happening in America. In America, it was about ideas and ideals, and French Revolution was more about chaos and power and but for i guess the kind of proto-progressive is the idea that we're, we're always taking steps forward so it's um you know there's once we pocketed whatever we've whatever progressive gain like that now is the starting point and now looked at with derision that's not far enough we need to go farther <laughs> and yeah. You could definitely see how that would 
not gain him any friends because uh, we won. We established a society. Like, that wasn't very fun to fight the Revolutionary War, you know, ton, uh, all kinds of sacrifice. And we want to move ahead. But, you know, so the idea of like pushing more and more and more. But he's clearly against the monarchy and he spends um, quite a bit of the book giving us giving us a, a detailed laundry list of reasons. He says, uh, this one stood out to me um, early. He said, there's something exceedingly ridiculous in the composition of monarchy. It first excludes a man from the means of information, yet empowers him to act in cases where the highest judgment is required. There's, a, there's, there's really sort of echoes of Hayek. Obviously, obviously Hayek hadn't been born for another 200 years, but still, mm-hmm. it's, it's really interesting to that kind of that original idea of you need information in order to, to be the best ruler or to be the most efficient and to help them, uh, the most people. But he says the state of a King shuts him from the world. Yet the business of a King requires him to know it thoroughly. Wherefore the different parts by unnaturally opposing and destroying each other, prove the whole character to be absurd and useless. So the king needs to know the int- intimate details of of society, of commerce, of exchange, of uh, families and people, and the politics on the ground. But instead, a king is actually removed, living in the high castle, you know, surrounded by uh, layers of of servants or sycophants. And I don't know if you had the same thought, but it, it really did jump out to me. Like, you know what, that's, that's kind of like an early, earlier version of Hayek's argument about the, the need for information. And of course, Hayek was arguing that free markets uh, provide the most efficient way to, to distribute information rather than it's basically impossible for, for a group of people to learn and know enough to know, you know, how should we set the price of milk? But in fact, that's kind of what the monarchy is doing, set, setting the price of tea or, and so forth. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way, but it, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's that I, I was thinking more along the lines of almost like a populist argument of uh, the same sort of thing you sometimes hear directed against an American president. About, oh, he's in that palace there. Everybody around him just tells him what he wants to hear, which I think is increasingly true of American presidents of every party. I don't think that's I, mean, I think that's definitely true of. President Biden, I don't think he talks to anybody all day who doesn't tell him what he wants to hear. But that was probably true of Trump for the most part, too, and and, and all of them. I mean, especially towards the end of their terms. They're isolated. Yeah. Now, of course, we can throw them out after four years, which is nice. Um, so there's, even there, even if the president lives like a king nowadays, uh, it's still a, at least a temporary king. But it's, yeah, that that uh, that's the first of uh, many points that I think maybe everyone didn't consider in 1776, but we're starting to, you know, and he mentions a few republics like the Dutch Republic, which did exist. And, and of course, England had been a republic for 11 years in the 1600s. And after they uh, cut their king's head off in 1649, but it didn't work. And they brought the king back pretty fast. So it, it, I think in the popular mind, there was a lot of this idea of, well, you have a country and then you, you have a king for it. That's, that's how countries work. Um, and he's pain sort of painting a different picture, a different possible future. And he actually has a sort of sketch of how he thought a federal government could work, which I don't, I don't know that we'll get into that much, but it, it was, it was weird, but not that different, I guess. 
mostly what he's doing though is sort of just really savaging the whole idea of monarchy in a way that you didn't do when you were part of a mm-hmm. uh, living under a king I, I i like he from the beginning in chapter two he says like why do we even have this idea that this person and his family are separate he says is as male and female are distinctions of nature good and bad the distinctions of heaven but how can a race of men came into the world so exalted above the rest and distinguished like some new species is worth inquiring into and whether they are the means of happiness or misery to mankind mm-hmm. yeah i mean at some point that that was sort of a that was i think a leveler slogan in the english civil war was uh uh when adam delved and eve span who then was the gentleman basically at some point all of humanity was the same class now we're not so how do we get here does it make sense you know, how does it how does it make sense that this guy has a title and this guy is a peasant? You know, and and if and if it makes sense, just because that's how it ended up, does it make sense that that person necessarily should be in charge of everything? Mm-hmm. And he gets into a lot of the the the, uh, the biblical history too, where uh, the prophet, I think it was the prophet Samuel, told uh, the Israelites when they asked God for a king, like all the other countries had. The kings are terrible and you know he's going to get you into wars he's going to tax you you know he's going to take all your best people and bring them to the capital to serve him do you really want this and of course the ancient israelites were like yeah that that's exactly what we want and then they got it and they had, they had some good kings and some bad ones but you know he he's bringing that that bible history in there too which would have been common you know i think in a lot of colonial homes I mean, colonial literacy was higher than we think I mean, it was you know it, a lot of people could read in the British colonies, but the one book they all read was the Bible. I mean, these, these were people who, even if they weren't members of a church, they, this is the book they were familiar with. So bringing that into it sort of reminds people that, you know, it doesn't have to, doesn't have to be this way, which is, I always think it's weird when back in, you know, you have all these biblical parts in the Old Testament where they're saying the kings are awful. And, but by the Middle Ages, kings in Europe were like, hey, this throne was given to me by God. Right. Well, right. I, I mean, really, because <laughs> that's a diff- That sounds like a different God than the the one we've been reading about. But Payne's bringing that into it too, and he so he's got these historical arguments and just some logical sort of questions that uh, we're not not being asked in most of the capitals of Europe, but we're starting to be asked here in America. Yeah, yeah. He's he's trying to blow holes in the the the, the concept of divine right of kings. Like they really don't have a divine right. And this contrasts a little bit with the last couple of books we read on meritocracy. And both of them, both of the books that we've read on meritocracy were at least a soft criticism. Sandals was more of a hard criticism. But you're kind of like, here's the example of what it used to to be like. Is you you had kings, you had dukes, you know, nobles. And if you were born into the right family, you were lucky. And if you weren't, and so you could say, well, Sandel might say, well, you're just as lucky having the, the intelligence or, or LeBron's basketball skills, for example. And there is some truth to that, but I think if all of us given were, were given the choice between, would we want a King who potentially, and he even says, uh, he makes this argument that it's just absurd that some that you have some twenty-year-old ruling the country, which obviously happens. You know, you have emperors in China who were like children, who were the emperor or something, and uh, you know kings in uh, in Britain who were younger potentially. And 
and it's the, the absurdity of that, you know, versus, um, at least giving someone an opportunity to exercise talents, even if that, even if those talents were, were given to him by God or the universe or whatever him or her. Um, but he says, uh, for all men being originally equals, no one by birth could have a right to set up his own family and perpetual preference to all others forever. And I think that's a big difference too, between meritocracy is there's an assumption with meritocracy that, uh, that you could be plucked from like Alexander Hamilton from as a, you know, a bastard child and plucked from obscurity in the Caribbean and rise to the top versus you basically, it's basically set if we're talking about noble families and, and, uh, the families of Kings and, you know, the sun is next, you know, regardless of talent or whatever, there's a, uh, there's really no chance that you're ever going to break out where there is some hope that if you're a peasant in America, I think there's great hope that if you, if you are born with ability that uh, you're going to have an opportunity to succeed. Yeah. And he, he, he puts up the, he, he does take a few of the arguments that for monarchy and, and analyze them. He says the most plausible plea, which has never been offered in favor of hereditary succession is that it preserves the nation from civil wars. And if this were true, it'd be weighty. Whereas it is the most barefaced falsity ever. <laughs> <by mankind. laughs> I mean, you know, this is, yeah, this is, this is not high philosophy. He's bringing it. This is a street fight. He says the whole history of England disowns this fact. 30 Kings and two minors have reigned in that distracted kingdom since the conquest in which their time, there has been no, less than eight civil wars and 19 rebellions <laughs> it's true i mean if yeah I, I think that's an argument that you would get for monarchy because especially in foreign relations a democracy can be uh, kind of chaotic you know we elect a new president and all of a sudden he's a different attitude towards all our allies yeah and you know you saw that right after the revolution when uh, jefferson's party loved the french loved the revolutionary french you know and then but the federalists hamilton and, and adams they were uh, really kind of appalled by what was going on in France and wanted to pursue more trade with England, who they thought was more like us, even though we had just fought this long war. And that's that's a bit of chaos that, that happens in democracy. But uh, what he's saying is there's still there's still just as much craziness in in a monarchy. And he, uh, he goes on, he talks about William the Conqueror himself, and he calls him a a French bastard landing with an armed banditti and establishing himself king of England against the consent of the natives is in plain terms a very paltry, rascally original. <laughs> I, guess, I don't know. I think, that was, I think rascally was probably a pretty heavy insult in 1776. He says, it certainly has no divinity in it. Again, yeah, I mean, we're getting these, you know, he's sort of taking the lessons of history, things that had come down to English colonists as, oh, look at these were great kings and Here's all they did, and he's saying, you know, it's 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 a bunch of nonsense. They were they're always fighting wars, and I think he kind of gets into this idea, which turned out not to be true. That um, yeah, later on he says the republics of Europe are all, and we may say always in peace. All right, that's not true anymore. But <clears throat> there were two. I mean, there were two republics at the time: Switzerland and and the Dutch Republic. And that's even that's not true. The Dutch fought a lot, so I think he's kind of exaggerating there. But you know, to the to the people at the time, it it is true. Kings will get you into wars all the time. When an absolute monarch who has a, a beef with some cousin across the continent is going to send your yeah. your boys over the Alps to die there, and it's like, but but why? Payne is sort of hopeful about the idea of popular governance, 
and really thinks it'll keep us out of wars. And honestly, we did not get into that many wars for the first hundred years. You know, I mean, we we pretty much stayed over here and minded our own business and built this country and you know built up our industries and and our population and, and really prospered. So he's he's not a hundred percent wrong. It's just when you look at the world of twenty twenty one, most countries are republics. There's less war than there used to be, but it's eh, it's still kind of a mess out there. Yeah, and I think it has less to do with democracy than it has more to do with just our own hubris as you know being the world superpower. But, um, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's turning back a little bit. So he, uh, he makes an argument against this, uh, this broader argument that some are making saying that, uh, we need the protection of Great Britain. We basically, we need this kind of this father figure watching over us, protecting us, keeping us safe from the evils of the, from, you know, other, other, uh, foreign enemies and so forth. But, he says, uh, we have boasted the protection of Great Britain without considering that her motive was interest, not attachment, that she did not protect us from our enemies on our account, but from her enemies on her own account. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Europe and not England is the parent country of America, which was really interesting. I mean, that was that's what my, uh, we read, uh, Maceus, uh, History Has Begun, a few weeks ago, uh, well, a couple months ago or whatever, and... And uh, he says the same thing, which I thought was really interesting and a different way of looking at it, because I actually always have thought of America as, or England as the the parent country of America. But here Thomas Paine says, no, it's actually Europe. The new world hath been the asylum for the persecuted lovers of civil and religious liberty from every part of Europe. The same tyranny which drove the first immigrants from home pursues their descendants still. I challenge the warmest advocate for reconciliation to show a single advantage that this continent can reap by being connected with Great Britain. Our corn will fetch its price in any market in Europe, and our imported goods must be paid for by them where they will. I mean, this is an argument against mercantilism, you know. Uh, the the home country, the mother, the motherland, the mother country, basically just uses you as a as a uh, a, a faraway fiefdom that they can that they can exploit and pull all the resources, bring them back, and sell them. And at the same time, force you to buy their stuff, like their tea or whatever, rather than buying tea from uh, any uh, any number of other sellers. So he says, any submission to or dependence on Great Britain tends directly to involve this continent in Europe, wars and quarrels. That's to your point, too. And sets us at variance with nations who would otherwise seek our friendship and against whom we neither anger nor complain. So you you just got done saying that for the first hundred years of the, of the country's history, we didn't get into, into too many wars you got to imagine that that would have been different had uh, had America remained a a a, a, a territory of Great Britain, and um, even when uh, World War One and World War Two came around, I mean, in, in both cases, even World War Two, which we were rightly so very proud of of uh, American accomplishments, it it wasn't politically like. I mean, it, it wasn't politically desirable. There most of the country was like, that's their problem. You know, let them fight their own thing. Don't get us involved. Let us, let us do our own thing. And, and it's kind of, so I, I thought that was interesting here because he kind of previewed that situation of had we remained with, with Great Britain, then we certainly would have been part of world war one. Uh, we certainly would have been part of world war two. Now we ultimately like entered on their, on the, the British side, of course. But, uh, anyway, that's not where the public was. That's not where the public opinion was for, at least the first quite a while before um, sinking of the Lusitania or 
uh, actually we're recording today uh, on the 80th anniversary, December 7th, where this is the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor attacked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Until the war came to us, we weren't really looking for it. And that, I mean, and uh, yep, like you were saying, this was a small country in those immediate post-colonial days, two and a half million, three million. This was, this was not the super super uh, power bestriding the world that we are today. So, yeah, I mean, we would have been mixed up in those Napoleonic Wars for 20 years if, if we were still part of Britain. And we still we even got pulled into it a little bit in 1812. But definitely his point here is good. And it's it's a, it's a good retort to the natural sort of fealty that patriotic colonists felt towards the mother country. Yeah, and that's the same way that somebody in a distant part of America might look to our capital and say, yeah, that's, that's, that's my capital. That's where it happens. These people were looking to London in the same way and saying, yeah, that's, that's, that's our government in America. They, you know, I didn't vote for any of it, but they represent our people. And he's saying, yeah, I mean, he says, if it's the, if England's the mother country, it's been a pretty abusive mother. And it, you know, it's, it's been a sort of narcissistic mother that only is really interested in their, in things that benefit her. And that's a good point that I don't, think people necessarily considered until it came home to them and you know until it it, it looks i mean england wasn't oppressing everybody constantly in the colonies but like he's saying it that was because it benefited them the the benign neglect sort of theory of they let us do our own thing but look it you can't do anything that hurts england and you know you can only sell your goods to england and you can't make deals with other countries and it's they were nice to us as long as we were helping them. And then when it, when we started to speak up like a unruly teenager, all of a sudden we, you know, we're going to get smacked down with a bunch of redcoats and it's, uh, mm-hmm. he's not having it. So it's, and, and I, and he, and he talks sort of about obliquely about the geographic thing too, about just, it's, he says, it's not in the power of Britain or of Europe to conquer America. If she did not conquer herself by delay and timidity, basically this is a big country, even then, and it wasn't so full of people as it is now, but it's a big place. And, you know, for England to conquer it against an armed resistance would have been difficult. And it turned out to be pretty difficult. But even even had we not had the aid of France and Spain, as we did later in the war, it would have been difficult. I mean, England might have, they might have captured all the cities and stationed troops here for a long time and, and hanged our leaders. But to keep a people down you know, from across an ocean in those days. And uh, when England really did not have a big army, they, they, they were a naval power and they, they could raise an army if they had to, but they weren't that sort of country. Really, no one was until Napoleon. So he, he's, he's sort of saying here, look, we're, it, it's, it's not natural for this big country to be ruled by that little island all the way across the ocean. It doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Says it's a, uh, repugnant to reason the universal order of things to all examples from the former ages to suppose that this continent can longer remain subject to any external power the most sanguine in britain does not think so well uh turned out to be right and and that turned out to be right in other colonies too once the napoleonic war started all of spain's colonies revolted portugal's colonies and they they all eventually became independent too because it that you know Europe could conquer this land when only the Indians were here and they didn't have guns and they didn't have cannons and, and tall ships and things. But uh, as 
fighting people with equal technology and and that whole space of the ocean of having to invade us from all the way over there it wasn't going to work and uh mm-hmm. I, I again i don't know if people realize that in 1776 and he's he's sort of laying it bare in pretty plain language that like look we think we're we we have fewer people than england they started us they're you know it, they have all these trained soldiers and these big ships but look we've we've got more than you think we've got the advantages of distance we've got the advantages of this of fighting on our native soil turned out to be right but uh i i think it was a pretty bold it might have seemed a bold claim when he first made it because we you know the war had only been going on a year and there had been a few battles small ones you know but britain hadn't really brought the hammer down yet uh but he turned out to be right and it's another another uh good point another well laid out argument for something that not everyone was really thinking yet yeah that is a great point I'm glad you mentioned that. And I mean, and of course, it fast forward to the contemporary times. We've seen a similar situation in in Vietnam, in Iraq. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We've tried to do that, go across an ocean. And to your point about uh, the advantages the Americans did have, he says it's not in numbers, but in unity that our great strength lies. And I think the South, or the sorry, the uh, the uh, Viet Cong and, and the North Vietnamese would say the same thing. Like you, uh, you can kill one of us, but there's going to be five of us right behind and having that, uh, I mean, that it's very difficult, very difficult to beat a, a people who are committed like that. He says our present numbers are sufficient to repel the force of all the world. Uh, we are sufficiently numerous and were we more so we might be less united which actually I thought was super interesting. Yeah. And uh, he doesn't really, he doesn't really expound on what he exactly he means by that, but except to say that, that the bigger the the population, the more self-interested in, especially when it comes to commerce and economics, they become more, you know, focused on that kind of stuff, which I didn't think was that strong of an argument, but um, I guess I kind of see where he's coming from. But it is a good point that we've well, that we continually run up against today as well. I mean, more numbers to me is more saying it's it's less about the numbers and more about the the homogeneity. You know, I mean, the more we're united, we're very much of the same culture and people, and and. Uh, you know, we haven't broken up as into as many factions and that sort of thing versus of course in a democracy and certainly in America today, that's all we are is, is factions and, and fighting one another. And, and, uh, but you know, the smaller the group and the more homogenous intent, they tend to be more united and, and more strong in that way. And I, so anyway, I thought that was an interesting point. It is. Yeah. And maybe it's, I, and it was, a, it was a big point. Um, they talked about it in the Federalist Papers and another places about whether a big republic can even work because it's yeah, never been done before right. he says independence is the only bond that can tie and keep us together i think that kind of well that kind of makes sense in the way that by being independent we are smaller so that we're you know we're not just a part of a vast empire we're our own thing that so that that does shrink it down but it also i maybe and it's he it doesn't develop this exactly but i i think it Sort of gets to the point that that gives us all something in common. We've all just, we are all now Americans, not just 
citizens of the British colony of Pennsylvania or the British colony of Virginia or what have you. So independence and becomes the sort of bedrock for American nationalism and nationality to, to build on. And, and it gives us something that we can develop together, you know, having, and then having fought for it together also is, is sort of, you know, there's a, a shared sacrifice to that, you know, the, the blood of the revolution, even after all those patriots had passed away was something that their descendants could remember. And, and even descendants of people who didn't fight in it, descendants of newer immigrants or, or, or loyalists or what have you, you know, after generations, it becomes a thing. So and I'm not sure that's exactly what Payne's saying, because he kind of, this is right at the end of, he's a little all over the place here, but he, he says, but that, that idea that being all of us rebellious subjects together will keep us together, tie us together, forge that new nation, uh, that, that makes a great deal of sense. And I think, I think it's come to be true. I don't think anyone would say that there's not an American nation. I get, uh, people do say this, but I think that there is an American nation, an American culture that is, it's not just the documents or the flag. It's, you know, the things that have happened, the history that we've, we've talked about this on previous episodes when we talked about nationalism, there is something mm-hmm. there and this is where it began. You know, mm-hmm. this is, this is the first thing we all did together. All 13 of these colonies together said, yeah, this is, we're different now. We're, we're doing our own thing. And that's the beginning of something new. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really strikes me the bravery to, to come out and say something like this. It is true that, as you said, the, the British weren't as oppressive, but you could imagine, could someone say this in, in China about, uh, about President Xi right now? Could, mm-hmm. could someone say this in Stalinist Russia? Could someone say this in, in North Korea? Could someone say this in uh, Cuba under Castro? I mean, not really. So mm-hmm. it does take a tremendous amount of bravery and kind of understanding that, that you're going to be on the, the hit list, you know, from there on out, which I, so I just find it incredibly, uh, you know, brave as well. And he makes this argument that what we're going to move to is the rule of law. In America, the, the law is king, he says, for as in absolute governments, the king is law. So in free countries, the law ought to be king, and there ought to be no other. But lest any ill should, should afterwards arise, let the crown at the conclusion of the ceremony be demolished and scattered among the people whose right it is. <laughs> That's pretty bold language. But he's saying uh, the rule of law, as, as well as... You know, as you you mentioned earlier, um, that uh, he does spend some pages on kind of drafting his own his own proposal for a Congress, and it doesn't look so different. I mean, it's uh, it's it's different, but it's it's not so different. So you can see that these ideas are are kind of circulating at the very least. Maybe he was the first one to. I actually don't know, but there's a good chance he was the first one to kind of come out and say this in a in a pamphlet. This this is the way that we should do it. We should we should uh, have uh, representatives and have a republic rule of law uh, and just move away completely from from the idea of a monarchy. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think I guess my closing thought would be this pamphlet, which is not very long and not written by anyone anyone had heard of at the time. It, it shows that I think it shows the power of ideas in a in a literate people. People could read this, and it you know it was printed up, and 
sent around the country and people people could make up their own minds and that, that's sort of what we're what we're always talking about with what is liberty what is the point of liberty it's you know to find your own path to virtue well to decide how best to be governed here is some guy who nobody knew and he's putting out his ideas and all of a sudden it's sweeping the nation and people are saying yeah that's I I am getting this. I I agree. I, this this makes sense to me. This is what we should be doing. That was an that idea itself was a new thing in the world. Something this you know you talk about you couldn't say this stuff anywhere now. It couldn't it couldn't then either. I mean every every kingdom in Europe had a censor. Mm-hmm. You you know you either you couldn't publish for the most part without getting say so first. Without that you, know, you had that prior restraint we call it now. Because they didn't want ideas getting out of control, because they didn't trust the people. Here, even in the early days of the the revolution, we're not even a, we're not even a country yet. We 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 can see the force of ideas, and we can see that people can be trusted to form governments because we we were in the middle of doing it, and it and it worked. And it's it's really um, it's if if you ever I think we've got cause to sometimes doubt. When we see all of the nonsense on social media and cable news and the kind of ideas that animate people at times, but it can work the other way too. And whether people were being fed a bunch of nonsense about about how kings should rule them, here's somebody who had the the courage to say otherwise and and the freedom in that new nation to to do it. And well, he did it, and it's and it it all took off from there. Mm-hmm. And he closes by saying. These proceedings may at first appear strange and difficult. Basically, he's like, I know this sounds crazy to you guys, but he says, like all other steps which we have already passed over, will in a little time become familiar and agreeable. I mean, was he right about that or what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so that's my closing thought. All right, that's Thomas Paine. Catch us next time.